Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus, where we have conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Eileen Bodie. I've been a member of the caucus for 10 years, and I'm delighted today to be hosting a conversation with Clarice Mathis. And we'll be talking about the unique and growing role of physician assistants in the healthcare landscape. Clarice is an orthopedic physician assistant at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, which is in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, Clarice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you here today. And actually, my very first question is this. A lot of people don't know what a physician assistant does. What do you do? So that's a great question. Uh, a physician assistant is a medical practitioner in which we, uh, our graduate program, we go to school for about two to three years, our most PA programs, in which we are trained to diagnose, treat, uh, read x-rays, we can prescribe uh, medications, things of that nature. We're in the operating room. It's pretty much almost a comparison of four years of med school kind of crammed into two to three years. So we're fully able and capable to see patients on our own. We have a lot of autonomy depending on which sector that we're working in as well. So at Lenox Hill, as a physician assistant, you're in the orthopedic section of the hospital, is that correct? Correct. So are you actually in the operating room you know, assisting surgeons? Yes. That's like my number one place that I love to work at. So I'm in the operating room at least two days of the week. So do you help out with uh, preparation for surgery with the patients? Yes. So literally, I'm there from start to finish. We'll see the patient. As soon as they come in, they're getting dressed. Uh, just to get a little bit more background about the patient, I'll just ask about their medical background and things of that nature. I'm actually, you know, there with the patient, escorting them in the room with the nurse. I'm helping prep and drape. You know, if an anesthesiologist needs help, I'm helping them give blocks and things of that nature. And as soon as we're, you know, they're put to sleep, I'm there prepping, draping, first assisting with with the surgeon, all the way down to suturing, closing wounds, and taking them to the recovery room. Now, but you also told us that you're involved in working with migrant children as a physician assistant. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So I have a per diem job that I work on usually every Monday in which I work for a facility called Cayuga. It's pretty much all the children that are crossing the border. A lot of them are crossing without their parents. Most of their parents are left behind or some of their parents are actually in the United States. So what we do as PAs there, we pretty much are frontline with these children. We're making sure that all their medical vaccinations are up to date um, and things of that nature so that they can either go into foster care or they're pretty much teed up that they can also be, you know, sent with their parents. So we're doing everything from sick call, vaccinations, giving TB shots and, and things of that nature. Well, it sounds like there's a, a real contrast between what you do at Lenox Hill Hospital and what you do with Cuyahoga. So let me ask this question. Let's go back to Lenox Hill for a second. What is your patient population there? Is it, uh, is it reflective of people who can afford elective surgery? Are there any health care disparities there? Or what, what kind of patients do you have? I would say because of the location of the hospital, it's located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And if you're from New York, you know that's a pretty posh area. Uh, so I would say our population is not that diverse, but we do have a lot of surgeons that I feel like are bringing in that diversity where we're having a uh, stronger reflection on a lot of uh, Hispanic and Latino patients, especially coming in for spine surgeries and joint replacements. Uh, we will have always construction workers, because so they're always doing constant construction in the area. And uh, just seemingly that's a strong Spanish population as well, minority population that comes in that are having you know accidents and injuries that we will see that population come in as well. But I feel like it depends on the surgeon 
region that are kind of starting to diversify the group. And then also, again, it's still New York City, so we will have those occasional uh, people that are homeless that break their ankle. We still have to treat them no matter what and trying to help them get into shelters and things of that nature. So it's not just going to be necessarily the older lady that's fallen and broken her hip and which we're doing a surgery on or the people that, like you said, can afford the elective surgeries as well. This is a very interesting concept. You have a hospital here on the Upper East Side, which really, if you will, services more well-to-do patients who can afford uh, and have, an, have excellent health insurance. And then you've got a, a beginning patient base who are coming in who may or may not have insurance. Do you find any kind of unequal care between the two patient populations that come to Lenox Hill? Well, I can only speak for myself. I treat, you know... I, when, especially if I'm in the operating room, I don't necessarily know your complete background. So to me, you're just a patient that I'm just trying to make sure we keep alive and we do a great surgery on. But I do notice because I'm you know, also in the OR, I'm also on the inpatient side. So I do take care of these patients after the operating room and post-op care. And once you do find out a little bit more of their background, um, I do notice that the people who may be you know, in domicile versus the people that are well-to-do or just at least, like you said, have great insurance, are able to have elective surgery, no problem. I feel like it's just a harder transition versus the patient with good insurance, they can just probably progress to go home versus the homeless person or the person that is elderly, uh, doesn't have any family at all to help them, you know, doesn't have great health care, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, they may go to rehab or they may not be able to afford to go to rehab. So I feel like that's where as a team effort, you know, social workers and case managers have to come in to play to try to figure out what are we going to do with this patient? We can't just, you know, send them back out on the street. We have to make sure that there's some sort of place, you know, plan in place before we can safely discharge them. So we've definitely had patients that we call them like they're just livings that have been with us for, you know, almost like 20, 30 days because of their home situation where we just have not been able to, you know, practically find a place for them. It's pretty tough, but as far as me, you know, I just, I take care of everybody. It was almost a recent incident where some lady needed a scooter and she couldn't afford one. And our, my cohorts were literally saying, hey, everybody, if we just chipped in $10 a piece, instead of her just rotting here in the hospital waiting for a scooter because she can't afford one, why don't we just chip in and just give her the scooter? Because unfortunately, hospital resources, we only have one scooter in the house, which we use with physical therapy to practice on. So they were like, we're not giving a patient our scooter. We need that to train other you know, patients on. So it was just like, well, what do you do in this situation? Patient can't afford it. Hospital's not going to give it to them. What do you do in these situations? So I do feel like there are some caveats depending on what insurance you have that will determine, you know, where you're going to go, home rehab and things of that nature. Well, that's a very interesting concept. I was actually sort of fishing for that. I was trying to get to that. You know, not everybody, you know, has a job that will give them great benefits or, you know, unfortunately, everybody's going to get older. So what happens when we're on Medicare or if you have to be on Medicaid, what exactly, you know, what exactly is prepared for you, you know, and especially Social Security, that's running out. So a lot of people can't afford to have certain equipment or do certain things after you have these surgeries. And then the caveat behind that, too, is like it's a catch-22. You didn't know that you were going to fall down today and break, you know, one of your bones. So you can't just lay there because then, you know, mortality rate increases. Somebody has to do something and we have to intervene at some point. So at Lenox Hill, do you find that the, uh, the care providers are equal in their treatment of, um, uh, let's say, the, the more wealthier patients versus the patients who have limited uh, means? I don't, I don't 
don't really see that. I, I, I will not say that that has probably never happened. I'm sure it has. It's just that maybe I have never witnessed that. Um, I do notice that you know, certain patients who are wealthier may have more connections. So I have been in those situations where things weren't going their way and they've definitely said, well, I'm calling such and such. So they'll call my attending. Some of them know CEOs of the hospitals. Some of them know just people, higher ups and admin, and they will definitely try to blow the whistle on us because they know certain people. And for me, it's just like, hey, if that's what you have to do, sure. I'm just here to try to provide patient care. My, My goal is I'm pretty good with patient with bedside manner. So if I see there's an issue, I always just try to relate to the person or just try to try to figure out what's going on with the patient. I think that's one thing a lot of people don't do is just listen to the patient because deep down in that complaint or, you know, they're screaming and yelling, there's something wrong. There's something that they're screaming and crying for. And if you just try to find the root of that problem, then you can figure it out. And hopefully none of those things will necessarily have to, you know, happen. Do you think physician assistants have a role or responsibility in delivering humanitarian health care? Absolutely. I mean, I think just even the basis of what a physician is and where we came from, like we came from military corpsmen, you know, we came from that background of being out in the front field and developing this position. Um, and our primary role was to be in primary care in rural areas. That was the goal and still is the goal as a physician assistant. It's just that now we have all these other different specialties. So everybody's kind of branching out, but the primary role for a PA is to be in primary care and in the rural areas that not necessarily all of the doctors will be. So it is definitely not uncommon that there, you know, PAs are the first person that you see, which is very common when I speak to a lot of patients. They don't even see the doctor because they see the PA more so than the doctor, or the doctor comes in for five minutes and, you know, just, you know, does their thing and then it's back to the PA. So I definitely think we have a lot of responsibility as far as taking care of patients and are definitely most of the time the frontline person that a lot of the patients are seeing. Sounds like you're frontline with Cayuga. <laughs> With these uh, migrant children that are coming, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your role as a physician assistant and the kind of humanitarian health care you provide them? Sure. And actually, as when you said that, I just realized that I've been at Cayuga for about three or four years and realized that we don't necessarily have the doctors on site there, you know? So it's just like, we have a medical director. So if there's anything that's happening or an emergency occurs, we can definitely call and reach out to the doctor that's maybe on call that day. But it's pretty much ran by NPs and PAs all day, every day, in which, you know, we're pretty much the first medical practitioner that these children are seeing or some of them, you know, have seen in a very long time. So um, it's good because one, a lot of the uh, PAs and MPs, they speak Spanish. I'm picking up on my Spanish. So it's great because they can kind of relate to us. We can speak the language and they can feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, Unfortunately, on my perspective, I see the patients as far as giving them vaccinations and who likes needles. So I make them cry most of the time. But, you know, it's just great to know that I'm providing care for children that may not have gotten any care or great care back in their home country and we're just actually able to be a frontline person to actually continue that care so that they're up to par they you know we're providing that preventative care for them that they may not have had in their own country what happens to these young kids or these these teenagers they, you know they move on into foster homes or perhaps orphanages who continues their health care there we see the patients up to age 18 so i i literally see 
six-month-year-olds that I'm giving vaccinations to all the way up to 18-year-olds. And I figure at probably about 18, either they're on their own or they're still going to be with their foster parents or if they have been connected with their own family, they're actually living with them at that point. So um, I think for us at Cayuga, we're at least the first person that's actually able to kind of stabilize that medical care that they're going to get for the rest of their lives. You mentioned something that was very interesting before in talking about a physician assistant that was really originally designed to be in rural areas. And, of course, you know, you work in an urban area. So how do you see the future uh, for delivery of health care to rural areas and how it uh, may involve physician assistants? Our special, like just being a PA in general, we are, we are constantly growing. It's still kind of a new profession. We've been around for at least a little over 50 years, so it's not as well known as doctors and nurses are, but it's definitely, like, as they say, it's, it's I think it's in the top three as, you know, U.S. healthcare, hot jobs and things of that nature. So it's definitely something that a lot of people are going towards, you know, instead of becoming a doctor or a nurse. So I think, you know, as the ball gets rolling and, you know, just as far as like reimbursements and insurance and all those other technicalities that come, a lot of times a PA is going to be the person that people probably can afford to see and will want to see versus seeing a doctor because we're just, you know, we're just there more. We, you know, we're doing more patient care with them and we're probably put in those areas more so than a doctor would be um, as far as, you know, because then pay comes into play as well. You know, maybe some of these areas may not necessarily be afford, be able to afford having, you know, multiple doctors there, but they can have multiple PAs there with one doctor supervising. So that's how I see the model is for certain rural areas as well. That's very interesting. Uh, I certainly have seen an expanded role of physician assistants mm -hmm. in Chicago and in orthopedic practices as well as primary care practices just because of the, the quantity of people that need to see physicians and they can't maintain the, the you know, I want to call it the schedule to see all these patients Correct. and so the physician's assistants take over. Correct, yeah, because we're able to you know, see patients on our own. Like I said, we, you know, we just have the, we have a lot of autonomy, especially depending on the type of doctor relationship that you have. So it's, I think it's just more cost effective as well. And you can see more patients with a PA, you know, especially some of my friends that are actually private PAs, they literally have their own block time. So on certain days of the week, they will literally see their own patients uh, giving injections while, you know, the doctor has another day where they're both seeing patients. So you can increase the load, increase reimbursement. It, I mean, I feel like it just works hand-in-hand hand as far as a practice is concerned to have a PA is just a lot more beneficial for you. Do you think that um, with the increased um, use of bundled payments that you'll see more involvement of physician assistants to manage health care for patients? Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, at Lenox Hill, it's just like we, we've started to do billing, but it's not direct billing where the PA gets reimbursed directly. But I'm sure through the system, the hospital is getting reimbursed for every single, you know, consult that we've seen that we're billing for, every single surgery that we've, you know, first assisted on the, you know, in some sort of way, the hospital is getting reimbursed for that. And I feel as though, you know, with all these changes that are happening, a PA is just probably going to be probably, like I said, more cost-effective, more beneficial to have on the front lines than having, you know, specific doctors and things of that nature. And with the reimbursement issue, like I hear everybody complain like, oh, this was a Medicare, you know, total knee. Yeah, I got $300 for it. And it's just like, wow, that's for maybe like a, you know, $20,000, $40,000 surgery, you know. Uh, relative to, uh, let's say, physician assistants, do you see a future for them in terms of uh, providing humanitarian health care for a vast majority of people? 
Of course. I mean, that's something that I'm definitely trying to work on as far as just being more diverse. Uh, like I would say in the medical care in general, um, even as far as doctors, I feel like the numbers are extremely low. I think it's about three to four percent African-American representation as far as doctors are concerned. And it's about the same for physician assistants so, and minorities in general. So it's just something that we need to still constantly chip 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 away at because as you know the population is become becoming more diverse and you know to be honest sometimes a lot of patients when they see somebody that looks like them can speak the same language things of that nature they feel a lot more comfortable than someone who may just not be able to understand that's completely disregarding them and it's always nice to see you know a familiar face um prime example is when i first started as a pa i'm green i walk into the hospital and i'm in the recovery room and they page me and they're saying you know there's a patient of you know a latino hispanic patient and they're just you know they keep screaming ay 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 you know and i was just like okay and they were like yeah this is a case of the ay ay ay's and i was just like what what do you mean they're like you know that's what they do and I'm just like, really? As a new PA, this this is exactly what I'm hearing. So it kind of stuck with me. And it's like now when I see Hispanic patients and they give me the I, 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 which is exactly what they said. It's just like, do I listen to what this you know nurse told me? It's like, oh, they're just doing that. But you have to think about a cultural standpoint. Maybe this is the way that they express pain. And I think this is a it's a snowball effect of how people don't address people's pain issues and how people can die because you're not addressing what they're trying to tell you. So maybe, you know, the average person who had this total knee or big spine surgery may not scream or yell in pain, but the next person does, that doesn't mean that you need to disregard what they're trying to tell you. So for me, that was definitely a reality check that Clarice, you definitely have to treat everybody different. Um, you know, as far as like, you know, one person may take something a certain way, one person may do things a different way. And as far as pain is concerned with these big surgeries, you have to address everybody, you know, differently, you know? So it's just like, I just make sure that I just try to relate to the person. I try to talk to the, my patients at all times and just figure out what exactly is the issue. And I just don't ignore them. And I think that's what happens a lot of times because not everybody is as, is as diverse. They don't know what to do and they tend to ignore patients. And I think that's where a downfall is in the medical field. So that's why, as a PA, I'm trying to make strides to uh, hopefully diversify the field. Um, I'm a part of a group from PAEA, which is our educational standpoint from PA um, associations, um, called Project Access, where we're literally taking a kit, a, a PowerPoint presentation, that's literally just telling you what a PA is, where do we work, how to become a PA, what type of schooling you need. Of course, everybody likes to know how much money you make, so that's attractive. We make six figures on average, and just the steps you need to take in order to become a PA, and we're doing that in minority high schools, and I recently just did that at my friends high school and it went great and especially since I'm orthopedics I have to throw in some splinting you know give them something practical to do and the kids loved it and now the kids know what a PA is versus what they know what a doctor is and what a nurse is and at least I've planted the seed and might have touched at least one or two kids to inspire them to now if they're interested in becoming something in the medical field they won't go with the average you know typical doctor nurse route but they might you know just try to look into what you know a PA is so planting these seeds in the kids. And even, you know, as a youth, I did that, you know, in PA school, we would go into elementary schools, give the kids little white coats, stethoscopes, teaching them practical skills. Because again, it just starts from young so that they can just have more awareness about the field. And that's my goal right now is to try to, you know, just make more awareness, especially in the minority population. So it sounds like what you want to do is become a teacher to try <laughs> to increase diversity in the physician assistance field. 
teaching is that that's that's on the back burner. My mentor is definitely trying to get me to teach at um, at my alma mater, Toro University, um, Manhattan campus in New York. So that that definitely is on the on the wave. I feel like a lot of people are saying you have a great personality. You're funny. You like to talk and you're good with people. So you should definitely start teaching. So, yes, that's definitely on the next step as far as my career. So let me ask this question. So do you think it's important to increase diversity in terms of a race and gender in the physician assistance field? Absolutely. You know, the funny thing is is that uh, as a physician assistant, we are, it's about 60, 70% women, which... (laughs) So it's it's pretty much mostly mostly women that are PAs. Uh, so if you're a male PA, it's like you're a unicorn. But um, so I think we're doing very well in that part of the uh, spectrum. But as far as diversity is concerned, absolutely. Like it's just very nice to see other people, like I said, that look like you. And it's like, like we literally, my friends and I, we call ourselves unicorns of the group. When you see another African-American female PA, it's just like, whoa, hey, high five. Like, where'd you go to school? It's like an automatic connection. You know, there are specific groups that are out there, you know, like I'm a part of the African-American Heritage PA Caucus, which is affiliated with AAPA. Again, we're part, you know, we have these big groups, you know, that are out there that are trying to diversify the field, but it's just, it's just hard. You know, I think there are a lot of boundaries sometimes as far as a minority to even get to these steps to being someone in the medical field. So we need to start chipping away at that to, so that can be more accessible for us to even, you know, just become a PA. Do you think that there's better care by, uh, say, an African-American PA with an African-American patient? Do, or do you think that it does it, or does it matter if you have different races? That's a great question. That's a hard question. That's a very hard question. Um, I don't think I would use the term better. That's a strong word for me. I, I, think, I think the care could possibly be different. Um, I, I think, you know, like I said, when you can relate to your doctor or PA or nurse or whoever, when you can relate to them and they understand where you're coming from, maybe some of the social issues you have, or maybe this is why I'm not losing weight to get the total knee replacement because I have X, Y, and Z going going on at home, or I live in this certain area, things of that nature. I think when people, people connect to you when they can relate. And I think that's a big part of the medical field. Besides operating, you have to be able to connect with people and people have to want to like you and trust you. So if I don't like you, I'm probably not going to trust you. So there might, I feel like the likability aspect, the trust aspect, those are things that fall into play. And I feel like, you know, when you have somebody that looks like you or come from the same background, it might be an easier connection for likability and trust versus someone who doesn't look like you, doesn't come from where you come from, you know, you don't trust them. You know, if I see a white doctor, I might say, hey, you don't, you probably don't believe that I'm in all this pain because you think I'm probably faking. Some people think they're drug seeking. You know, there's so many things that can come up and it's just like, maybe that's not it. Maybe I have other issues going on that you don't know about or medical issues or things that are just going to heighten my sense of pain or whatever else you have you that are, you know, falling into place. And so, you know, they may not want to talk to that you know, doctor that doesn't look like them and express those things to them. But if they see somebody that looks like them, they might be able to open up a bit more. So I think that there is a definite chance that treatment will be a little bit different um, when you, like I said, when you have somebody that looks like you. So do you think that um, uh, race and gender affect knowledge in terms of um, social determinants that you better understand the background, the backstories of African-American patients? 
Um, I definitely do. I mean, like, I'm not a person that had a extremely traumatic childhood or anything like that. But, you know, if I met somebody that came from my same neighborhood, you know, I might be able to relate with them and know, like, hey, when you if you grew up in this neighborhood, I know that there probably aren't a lot of physical therapy places for you to go to as an outpatient. So you might want to go to X, Y, and Z place, you know, things things of things of that nature. So, you know, I just I feel like there, like I said, there's a relatability issue there that you'll be able to understand what exactly is going on um, versus, you know, someone else that, you know, doesn't know, sometimes doesn't care. Because if you can't relate with them, sometimes you're just like, okay, whatever, it's just another number, it's just another patient, and just brush them off. Do you think healthcare workers, there's a certain amount, no matter what your race or gender is, that there's unconscious bias on the part of healthcare workers towards patients? Uh, absolutely. Like that example that I gave you earlier about the IIIs and it was just like, what, you know, like this is, this is what you're teaching a new PA. This is the bias that you're telling me about Hispanic patients. And I'm green. Like, I'm just like, excuse me, what are you talking about? So yeah, I definitely do think that people will treat people differently based on where they come from and will ignore certain signs because they just don't understand where they're coming from culturally or this is how they express themselves. So I definitely feel like it's there. And I think it's a big thing now, unfortunately, that we have to even have these conversations or at the hospitals now they do have these, you know, trainings for, you know, diversity and culture and things of that nature. It's just like, really? Like, we literally have to sit here and teach people how to treat somebody else that may not necessarily look like you or come from where you come from. I think it's pretty crazy, but unfortunately, this is the time and age that we're in right now. So if it has to be done, then let's do it. If you had any goals for the physician assistant field in terms of improving um, health care and reducing health care disparities, what would it be? I think that's just the first goal that comes to mind is just increasing the number of, you know, minority PAs. It's just, it's just a, it's just a, a huge, huge, huge need. And it's a huge void that we have. And it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but that's just something that my goal is right now is to just try to start chipping away and just making people more aware, um, giving out those resources. Cause I feel like there are a lot of things that play come into play as why, you know, a lot of, you know, minorities are not jumping into the medical field. It's definitely a big financial burden. So that's, you know, that the debt is a lot and a lot of people definitely can't handle that, you know, and a lot of people I've seen have stopped going to school, got into a program, which is one of the hardest parts is getting into the program is a hard part, but then actually maintaining and graduating the program is the next biggest step because of financial reasons, because they don't have the support um, from their family, which I find that other cohorts do. You know, if you have a mom and dad, I know a lot of people that are of Caucasian descent that they have parents that are doctors and nurses. I had to work my way hard just to find somebody to shadow or, you know, for a PA, or I got the job on my own, whereas I know some of my cohorts, their doctor knows, you know, 50 million surgeons in the hospital, they didn't really have to do much of an interview. They didn't really have to go through the application process. They were able to just automatically go in there. And there's not a lot of, you know, African-American, you know, families that are full of doctors. I have no doctors in my family. I didn't even know what a PA was until I got introduced to that by a friend in college. So, you know, it's just like, again, we don't know these things because, we're not exposed. So I think just the exposure um, to us and just supplying the resources financially. Um, right now, I'm getting ready to start letting a lot of people shadow me of all races. Um, but I, I am a part of certain groups that, you know, are specifically for minorities in the medical field 
for pre-PAs, and I'm definitely, you know, going to let them start shadowing me so that they can get these shadowing hours to apply to school. So using myself just as an outlet and just encouraging my other friends that we need to just kind of be there for others so that they can be in the same position for us. So for me, that's just the main goal is just increase, increasing the diversity in the field because we definitely need it. Well, it sounds like you've got your role cut out for you to be a future <laughs> teacher to attract, you know, African-American and Latino yeah. minorities, you know, to the field of mm -hmm. physician assistants. Well, it's been a real joy to talk with you today, Clarice, and really thank you for your time. I would like to also thank our listeners for joining us in this episode of Health Disparities Podcast. We hope you found it interesting. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes, and you, or you can sign up on our website to receive further notifications of new episodes. I thank you for your time, and I'll sign off for today. Thank you. <laughs>